Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. You'll find your place in Luke 17, verse 5, where we'll read from verse 5 through verse 19. While you're finding your place, let me say a few words of introduction. In the text before us this morning, the disciples will ask a question. They will ask the Lord, increase our faith. Like the man in Mark 9, 24, who said to the Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. The disciples sensed their need for greater faith. I think that this is something that all true believers experience at some point in our lives, that there are times when we feel as if our faith is incomplete, that it needs to grow, that there's something missing. But if we're going to have increased faith, if we're going to grow in faith, then we need to know what true faith is. and We need to know how to measure it, both in its quality and its quantity. You see, we don't measure true faith by the presence or the absence of works of power, great and mighty miracles, but rather by the real fruit of faith. We measure it when we see fruit that is in keeping with a right estimation of our Lord and a right estimation of ourselves. And that is what Jesus is going to teach His disciples in response to their question in the passage before us this morning. So if you've found your place in Luke 17, verse 5, would you follow along with me as I read? The apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, You could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also... When you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Father in heaven, as we come to your word, Lord, we also pray that you would grant to us faith and that you would increase our faith, that we would be faithful servants. We pray that you would give us understanding, that we might understand your word and know how to apply it in our lives. We pray that you would work in our hearts so that the word would not be just a word that we hear, but that we might become people who are doers of your word. In this regard, as respect to, in respect to our faith, Lord. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would increase our faith in terms of a true and a right faith, 
not a faith that is measured by the things of this world or what we see in others, but rather a faith that is measured according to your word and rightly identified and rightly weighed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to begin by talking about saving faith. What is saving faith? John Fesco, a Presbyterian minister, gives this definition of saving faith, and I find it quite helpful. He writes, While faith can be used in various ways, referring to the term faith, saving faith is faith that not only knows and comprehends the facts about the gospel of Jesus Christ, but also trusts in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Fesco goes on to distinguish this kind of faith from other sorts of faith. Historical faith, he writes, understands the claims of Scripture, and temporary faith seems for a time to trust in them, but saving faith is a firm conviction and trust in the person and work of Christ. While demons understand and comprehend the facts about God and Jesus Christ, this faith causes them to tremble. For the Christian, faith leads to joy and confidence in the goodness and grace of God, which bestows salvation through Jesus Christ apart from works, even apart from the fruit that flows from faith. I find that definition very helpful, and I'm going to make reference to it throughout the sermon this morning, particularly to these categories that Fesco writes about of historical faith and temporary faith in contrast with saving faith. And as he describes saving faith, I could illustrate it in this way. Imagine you walk into someone's house and you see that the door to the bedroom is open and you see that this person is standing there and they are setting up a hammock in their bedroom from the ceiling right over their bed. And you say to them, what are you doing? And they say, well, just in case my bed collapses under my weight someday, I have this hammock that will keep me up. And you'd say, that's a strange person. They don't really trust in the bed to hold their weight through the night. What's wrong with the bed or what's wrong with that person? In the same way, there are people who want to trust in the Lord, but only incompletely, and we hedge our bets, right? That's not the kind of faith that was described in this definition. Saving faith is that which trusts in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And that will be helpful for us this morning as we think about this subject from Luke's Gospel, because I think that the thing that often causes us to ask that the Lord would increase our faith or to pray that the Lord make us faithful, is a misplaced faith, is that we sense in ourselves that we have really placed our faith in ourselves, in our hard work, in what we bring to the table. And we've lost sight of the nature of true faith. We've forgotten how to measure faith in terms of its quality. Well, Luke is going to show that to us this morning in Luke chapter 17. And he doesn't make the argument so much by way of uh, the, the typical kind of essay type of argument that you might expect if you were reading a letter or an epistle in the New Testament. Rather, he makes the argument through pictures, through portraits, even through a parable-like saying of Jesus to show us different perspectives on what constitutes true faith. And in this way, Luke recalls a major theme from his gospel. I want to go back through the gospel and remind you of certain aspects of this gospel, certain uh, passages that we've already seen to this point that help to found this theme of faith in Luke's gospel because it will inform what we're looking at today in Luke chapter 17. 
In fact, this is going to be the theme that we're thinking about for the next few weeks as we go through Luke 17 and 18. Faith is going to be a major subject. We're going to see it referenced again and again. Right here at the outset of this text, we see a question from the disciples that the Lord would increase their faith. But we can go back all the way to Luke chapter 5, for instance, and we see an initial picture of faith in a paralytic and some men who accompanied him along the way. And he is one of three, I might suggest, three defining portraits of faith in Luke's gospel that help us to see what true faith looks like when someone truly is a believer. What does it look like in their life? We see three defining portraits of faith. You remember the paralytic who came to Jesus on a stretcher. He had his friends carrying him. Back in Luke chapter 5, verse 17 and following, And you remember how there was a great crowd that was crushing into this house where Jesus was as he was teaching. And they were crowding the way. And these men could not gain access to Jesus. But they persevered. They pressed on. They kept seeking. And ultimately they found a way through the roof. They removed the the roof, uh, whatever was on there, whether it was uh, thatch or or, um, uh, uh, panels or anything. They removed that. And they lowered this man through the roof into the midst before Jesus. And we read in verse 20 of Luke chapter 5, And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven. And so the paralytic and his companions become a first divining portrait of faith. And what did they do? They persevered. They pressed on to get to Jesus because they recognized that their only way to get what they were seeking was to gain access to the one who had the power to heal and the power to forgive, they would ultimately find out. Remember that Jesus first forgave the man's sins. And only then, after people questioned whether or not he could actually do this, then he gave the man strength to walk and raised him from his bed. We see perseverance. Perseverance as these men sought to gain access to Jesus, sought to come to the one who can save. They knew who could save them, and they stopped at nothing to get to him. And the second defining portrait of faith then, in Luke chapter 7, we turn over a few pages and we remember a centurion. A centurion who had a servant who was very ill. And at first the centurion sent men to Jesus to seek his aid, to seek his help. And those men, they were elders of the Jews, they came and they said, he is worthy for you to come to his house because he loves our nation and he built the synagogue in which we worship. And yet, when Jesus was approaching that centurion's house, that centurion sent some of his friends because the message had not been rightly conveyed. And those friends, they came to Jesus and they were told to say this, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word and let my servant be healed, for I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. To my servant, do this, and he does it. And Jesus remarked about his faith, saying this in verse 9, When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. In this particular instance, the perspective that we're given is that this man's faith was evident because he rightly 
recognized his own unworthiness. He had a right estimate of, his, of himself and a right estimate of his Lord. And so he acknowledged that he was not worthy for Jesus to come under his roof. But Jesus was far more worthy than he. And that was faith, Jesus said. And one third, one, uh, one final defining portrait then comes to us in the same chapter in Luke 7. At the end of the chapter, we remember a sinful woman, a woman of the city, who came while Jesus was having dinner with Simon the Pharisee in his house. And that woman washed Jesus' feet. And Simon thought in his head, if this man were a prophet, he would know who this woman was that was touching him. He would know what a shameful person she was. And yet, Jesus told Simon that she, in fact, was demonstrating her great love because she had been forgiven much. We remember that memorable phrase, the one who's forgiven much loves much. And he held her up as well in verse 50 as an example of faith. In verse 50, he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And so we have these three defining pictures of uh, three defining pictures of faith. One that shows people who are persevering and stopping at nothing to get to Jesus because they recognize he's the only one that can supply their need. Another of one who recognizes that he's not worthy of Jesus and makes his request as one who is not worthy. And a third, a picture of a woman who has received great forgiveness, and because of that great forgiveness, she loves much. She shows great gratitude, we could say. We're going to see those same pictures, those same ideas in the text before us this morning. But what we see in the rest of Luke's gospel then as we proceed through Luke and remember what we've, uh, what we've seen in past weeks and in the past months is that what arises after those three, those three first portraits is a challenge that comes to the disciples where they are being challenged concerning their faith it happens right there in chapter 8, the very next chapter, when Jesus calms a storm. In verse 25, when they're afraid and they marvel, Jesus says to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even winds and waters? And they obey him. They had not yet fully comprehended who Jesus was. They had not fully recognized His power and His ability to save. And so their faith was lacking in that moment. And along the way then, they would see other portraits of people that Jesus would hold up. A woman with a discharge of blood who sought in the midst of a crowd like those men with the paralytic to gain access to Jesus. He held her up also as an example of faith. And in Luke 8, 48, said something like He said to that woman, your faith has healed you, or your faith has saved you. Then again, we come to our text this morning in Luke 17, and we see another question, a sense where the disciples are lacking in faith. They're seeking for the Lord to increase to them faith. And then we see a second picture of a person to whom Jesus says, your faith has healed you, or your faith has saved you. And that's going to take us all the way to the end of chapter 18, where Jesus is going to challenge His disciples with a parable that he concludes with these words, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And then the whole series will conclude with another picture of a man, a blind man, who receives sight and is told, your faith has saved you. What am I trying to show you in this broad picture of Luke's gospel is that Luke is developing 
through portraits and pictures and parables what it looks like when people embrace Christ with a true and saving faith. And we come to it in chapter 17 in a very concentrated way in these next two chapters where we ourselves, as readers of this gospel, are confronted with this same question. Do we have faith? Will we believe? Will our faith be the same kind of faith, that lasting faith, that enduring faith, that true and saving faith that we see in people that Jesus holds before us as examples of faith? Or will, be, will it be mere historical faith or temporary faith, the kind that we read about in the parable of the sower, when thorns and thistles choke out the seed, or when the sun rises in its scorching heat, it withers and dies or proves fruitless? Which kind of person will we be? Which kind of disciple will we be? Only those who have that saving faith that endures through all trials will be saved. And so we need to know what that saving faith looks like in our lives. So we come back to further pictures then in verse 5 of chapter 17 and following. Now we remember this question they ask and we, we come back to the question. They say, increase our faith and we might wonder what gave rise to this question? Why were they asking this question? Where does it come from? And I suggested earlier that it perhaps comes from a misplaced faith. You can think about the disciples for a moment. They are a rather uh, proud lot of, group of people. In Luke chapter 9, you remember how they were arguing with one another over which of them was to be the greatest. They had not quite learned this message about service and humility that Jesus had been teaching them over and over again. And yet, they also realized their own insufficiency. And in their insecurity... They realized that something was lacking in their lives. We can go back to chapter 9 and remember how Jesus came down from the Mount of Transfiguration and he found a, a, a man there who had brought his son who was demon-possessed and the disciples were unable to exercise that demon. They had cast out demons before, but this one they could not handle. And so they knew their insufficiency even as they boasted about who would be greatest. Jesus himself in that moment demonstrated that he had the power to do what was necessary. But they didn't get the point. And so we can surmise that the disciples are probably feeling some insecurity at this moment. There's a similar question that arises in Matthew chapter 17 in that passage I was just talking about when Jesus came from the Mount of Transfiguration. And he gives a similar uh, instruction as he tells them it's because of their lack of faith that they could not cast out the demon. There he says... If you had the faith like a mustard seed, just a little bit of faith like that, you would be able to command mountains and they would go into the sea. And here he says, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted into the sea and it would obey you. Now a mulberry tree is a tree with a deep and broad root system. Not easy to pull out of the ground. And yet they would be able to do this, Jesus says. It's typical hyperbole. He's not actually saying go around and speak to trees and tell them to hurl themselves into the sea. But he's seeking to show them the extent, the power of real and true faith and that their problem is not that they don't have enough faith to match these great things that need to be done, but they don't have the right quality of faith. They don't have the right kind of faith. If they have the right quality of faith, then even a little bit of faith would be sufficient. You see, they seem to be still trusting in themselves. And sometimes we think like that when we think about 
our own insufficiencies. We wonder why God does not answer our prayers, and we start to think, maybe it's because I don't have enough faith, and then we confuse faith with a really, really strong feeling. I just need to feel more deeply or pray more fervently. And yet all the while I'm trusting in myself, what I'm doing or failing to do. That's not faith, not the kind of faith that saves. I can't save myself. I can't save you. You can't save yourself. Nothing you do can save you. That's the point of faith. You don't trust in yourself. You trust in another. That's why Jesus can say, if you had faith like a mustard seed, that is this kind of true faith, where you really trust in the one who can save, you really trust in the one who can do wonders, Jesus himself, then you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted into the sea, and it would obey you. You would do amazing things. But the amazing signs and wonders aren't the things that prove their faith. Rather, it's in their case, we'll come to that. In their case, it's the Lord who will work through them to do those signs and wonders. You might be wondering right now, is why don't I do signs and wonders if I do have that right kind of faith? And we'll come to this idea in a moment, how they're different. The disciples and the apostles are different than us. But Jesus here is calling them to have a quality of faith. He's not necessarily calling them to go around and right now suddenly be doing wonder, uh, wonderful deeds and miracles, right? He is showing them that if they have the right kind of faith, the quality of faith, it will be enough to do what God has called them to do. They want greater faith. Jesus wants them to have the right kind of faith. So he goes on to show them that true faith involves a proper estimate of ourselves before the Lord. And we see this in this parable that he tells with a picture of a self-centered disciple compared with a picture of dutiful disciples. Look at what Jesus says there in verse 7. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he Thank the servant because he did what was commanded. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say we are unworthy servants. We have only done what is our duty. What Jesus is showing, as I've said, is true faith involves a proper estimate of ourselves before the Lord. We are his servants and he owes us nothing. Remember the centurion. It's the kind of attitude that he himself showed when he said, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. And here Jesus is teaching his disciples that they ought to have that same kind of faith, the faith that says, we are not worthy. In the picture there, you have that picture of a servant. And you can imagine it in that day and age. A servant spends his time out in the fields harvesting a crop or tilling the ground or doing whatever he's assigned to do. And then towards the end of the day when he comes in, the master does not say, sit down and let me serve you now. The servant is the servant. And he does what servants do. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, if it were the other way around, you would say this is utterly ridiculous. And yet, sometimes what happens among God's people is that we begin to take for granted His grace. We begin to presume upon His grace as if somehow 
we deserve it. So somehow we earned it. As if somehow we're the ones who are worthy of it. And we know from Luke's gospel that the disciples had that kind of tendency, tending to think that they were the ones who were specially called by Jesus for a reason. They lost that sensibility that Peter had when Jesus first called him and said, Depart from me, for I am a sinner. Depart from me, Lord. And they started to take for granted their position in the inner circle of Jesus. Jesus tells them not to lose their sense of themselves, their right and proper sense of themselves. He regards them as servants of the Lord, regards them as unworthy of His grace. Now the amazing thing is that Jesus has already told a parable where He says He will do just the thing that He says they will not do. Turn back with me to Luke 13 and let me remind you of that text. In Luke 13, as Jesus was calling His disciples to demonstrate faithfulness in their lives. Not um, Luke 13, excuse me. In Luke 14, excuse me, in Luke 14. It's in, um, I've lost the text, pardon me, but in the text you remember the parable where Jesus says that he will welcome them into a banquet. And when he welcomes them into that banquet, then he will dress himself for service. And he will come and he will serve them. And he, will, he will be the one who seats them and reclines them at table and serves them in the kingdom of heaven. It's this amazing picture. But we need to remember, it's not because we deserve it. That that, that reversal where the Lord himself takes upon himself to serve his people is an amazing reversal. We need to remember God's grace in this. We need not to start thinking of ourselves as somehow people who have earned this. That's what Jesus is saying to his disciples in this parable of the unworthy servant. You wouldn't treat a servant this way. So don't start thinking as you are servants. Don't start thinking of yourselves as people who deserve this kind of treatment. Just say we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. And so then in the final part of the passage, as it turns, we see in this narrative about ten lepers as the, as the scene shifts and we see again that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's going directly to Jerusalem. He's, he's resolved to go and do what God has appointed him to do, to go and to give his life on the cross for his people and to be raised from the grave. As he's on his way from Jerusalem and he's between Samaria and Galilee, we encounter Ten lepers on the way. He enters a village. He's met by these ten lepers. And they are standing at a distance, lifting up their voices and saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when Jesus saw them, he said, Go and show yourselves to the priests. We remember that passage from Luke chapter 5, where a similar situation occurred. There, a leper came to Jesus and said, If you are willing, you can heal me. And Jesus was willing, and he did heal him. And then he said, go and show yourself to the priests. As was commanded in Leviticus 14, the priest had to authenticate that this person was clean and could be restored into Israelite society. And here Jesus says, do what's commanded in Leviticus 14. Go and show yourselves to the priests. Seems that the presumption is that along the way they will be healed. And so they do it. 
When he saw them, we read, after he said this, they go on their way and they were cleansed. Then in verse 15, one of them, when he saw that he was healed, he turned back and looked at his response, very much like that woman who, uh, who, who was at the dinner party, the woman in Luke chapter 7 who loved much because she had been forgiven much. This one turns back, praising God with a loud voice, and he falls on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, We're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? This man had a right estimation of his Lord. He recognized him for who he was. What he's doing as he praises the Lord is worshiping. And in that act, he is recognizing Jesus' unique position as the Son of God, whether he fully understands it or not. In the book of Acts, also written by Luke, Peter would, be, would, be, uh, would meet a centurion named Cornelius, and that man would do the same thing. He would fall at Peter's feet, but Peter would not say he's worshiping God. Peter would tell him to stand up, saying, I am a man like you. I am just like you. Don't worship me. But here Jesus receives this man's glad worship, and he receives it rightly. This man recognizes him for who he is. And seeing that he had been cleansed, he recognizes that it was Jesus who cleansed him, not a priest in Jerusalem or in Samaria who would cleanse him. It was Jesus. And so he comes back and he gives the proper praise and the proper glory to the one who did this. And this too is a picture of faith. For the passage concludes with Jesus saying, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Your faith has saved you. This man, this one leper who came, had a real and true faith. And Jesus places him then in contrast with the other nine. Listen again to what he says. We're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? The other nine dutifully did what he had commanded, we presume. They went on their way and they went to the priests. But they were a picture of what we would call that temporary faith that I read about earlier. The temporary faith that seeks Jesus perhaps for what benefits we can accrue in this life, but stop seeking Him when our life is good, when things have gone right, when no longer we sense our need. But this one Samaritan is a picture of a person with a saving faith, an abiding faith, because he sees that he has been cleansed, he sees that Jesus has met his need, and he doesn't simply go on about his life and forget about it, but he comes back to the one who has done it, the only one who has, could do it, and he praises him and he thanks him. He loved much, for he had received much from the Lord. He had a proper estimate of his Savior relative to himself. And so also we are presented this picture so that we might learn ourselves as well what true faith will look like in our lives. It looks like that one Samaritan. It looks like the servant who recognizes his own personal unworthiness. It looks like a person who has a complete and total trust in the Lord, and so is able to do things that might seem in, in, indeed wonderful. But what about these miracles? What about that where we began with Jesus saying, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, 
and it would obey you. We don't see those kinds of things in our own life. I've never worked a miracle. I wonder if any of you have. I, I rather doubt it. We've prayed for things, and we've prayed that God would work wonders, and sometimes we have received good reports that He has healed people quite miraculously, or we hear reports from afar of things that may have happened, but we don't have any way to verify all of these things, and we don't know how all of these things worked, and certainly it wasn't because one of us went and laid our hands on a person and healed them or did some kind of mighty work. Does that mean that our faith is lacking? We don't have the kind of faith that Jesus here talks about? No, I would suggest to you not, because faith is not about those great and mighty works, as I was getting ahead of myself earlier. It's not about those great and mighty works that we might do or not do in our lives, but it's about trusting God to do what He has promised to do and what He is pleased to do. And so a true faith does not simply manufacture great and mighty things, great wondrous works that we might imagine God ought to do, but it listens to His Word and it trusts Him to do what He has said He will do, not what He has not said He will do. Pardon those double contradictions. In other words, we don't hold God to promises He has not made. Now, in the case of the disciples, in the case of the apostles, Jesus had commissioned them to do great and mighty works, and He had told them they would do great and mighty works. And yet, we can turn over to Acts chapter 3. We see that when they did those works, they recognized it had nothing to do with any power that they themselves specially had. In Acts chapter 3, verse 11, we see after Peter and John healed a lame beggar, Peter explains what had just happened. This man is clinging to Peter and John. In verse 11 of Acts 3, we read, While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us? As though by our own power or piety, we have made him walk. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead, to this we are witnesses, and by His name, by faith in His name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. You see what Peter and John had come to understand that they did not fully understand back in, Acts, in Luke 17, is that these things depended upon God to work, depended upon Jesus to work through them. And indeed, in their case, he had promised to do mighty works so that in that early stage of the gospel going forth, people would see these mighty works and they would believe because of them. They would see those signs and wonders and it would be a way of God authenticating the apostles as, the represent, as His representatives to proclaim this gospel. Not so that they might go home and say, look at how great Peter and John were, but so that they might go home and after hearing what they proclaimed about Jesus Christ, the holy and righteous one, whom they put to death, whom God raised to life, they might believe and be saved. God told the disciples that they would do works like that for that purpose. He hasn't told us that we will have that same power. We ought not to think that 
because those things are lacking in our lives, that somehow it means our faith isn't there, that our faith is not enough, that our faith is simply too weak or not of the right kind. No, rather, what we ought to do is look for the signs of faith in those things that are consistent and common among all believers. The Samaritan in this passage did not go out and start working wonders to demonstrate his faith. His faith was evident. How? Because of his gratitude and his thanksgiving, because of what Christ had done for him. When we think about the centurion, how was his faith evident? Not because he went out and started doing miraculous deeds, but because he recognized his own personal unworthiness. And yet, he still sought mercy from the Lord, recognizing the grace of God in Christ. How was the, that woman demonstrating her faith at the dinner party in Luke 7? Not by going out and doing miracles, but rather by loving much because she had been forgiven much. And so, likewise, in our lives, our faith will be evident when the real fruit of faith, that abiding fruit of faith, is evident in our lives. What has God promised us? What has He shown us concerning His character? How can we act then in light of this in faith? He has promised us salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. We receive that. We believe it. And as we receive it, and we receive that salvation, and we, we believe that we have received that salvation, we rejoice with joy unspeakable. We thank our Lord again and again, and we never cease praising Him and thanking Him. That is a sign of true faith, a sign of true belief. What else has he told us over and over again in Luke's gospel as we have journeyed through this book together? He has told us that Christ will come again, that he will bring a resolution to all things. He has told us many things about money and our resources and what will come of that when Christ comes again. And he has called us to act faithfully in light of what he has told us. These aren't great and miraculous things that he's called us to do. He simply called us to believe when he says, I'm coming again, he really will. When he says, all, the, all our resources, all that we have, all the wealth in this world, there's a day coming when it will fail, so use it accordingly for eternal purposes. We believe he's going to do that. He's going to do exactly what he said he will do. And we'll store up treasure in heaven in this way, by being faithful in that way. These are simple acts of faith that flow from true belief. You believe that his word is true. You believe he'll do what he's said he will do, and so you act accordingly, whether it's using your resources, whether it's forgiving others who have wronged you because of how much you've been forgiven, whether it's humbling yourselves before others and serving their needs, counting their needs as more important than your own because he humbled himself for us. Those things are not things I mean to try to guilt you into or to command you to do because they're legislated, but rather I want those to really flow from a real heart of faith, from a real genuine faith, because you believe these things that God has spoken to us through Christ. You believe the promises that He has made to us. And so you act accordingly in faith. We don't need miracles to demonstrate our faith. And mighty works and signs and wonders don't show whether our faith is great or small. But rather, it's that consistent life of faithfulness that believes God's word, and that acts accordingly. And that doesn't nullify what Jesus has said in Luke 17 about 
commanding the trees or mountains in Matthew 9 and then being thrown into the sea. Because in the sense that that's hyperbole and we understand that Jesus is speaking about great and wonderful things that He will accomplish for His people as they believe, we can say in our lives, truly God has moved mountains. Truly He has cast mulberry trees into the sea. For He has transformed worthless servants like us into children of God. He has made miserable sinners like us into joyful worshipers. And He has united men and women like us in a community of faith, people who would never otherwise perhaps gather together as a community as we are. But God has done all of these things through Jesus Christ for people who believe. Indeed, He has moved mountains and He will move more. So let us be a people then who believe always and trust Him and measure faith rightly according to the way in which Christ teaches us here. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray, O Lord, that you would work such wonders in us, not praying for miraculous deeds and healings, though sometimes we seek these things, Lord. You know our needs, but praying that you would continue to work in us so that we might be a people who reflect the joy of salvation in our lives that we might be a people who re reflect joyful fellowship in our community, in our church, as you've gathered us together, that we might be people who worship knowing that we have been forgiven much, and so we love you much, and we love one another much. A people that is able to forgive, a people that's able to repent, a people that's able to humble ourselves. Lord, we can't produce such attitudes in our own hearts. Indeed, these are mountains that you must move. And so we pray, O oh Lord, that through your word, you would so work in our lives to move these mountains and indeed to increase our faith, both in its quality and its quantity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.